you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, and we'll be looking at verses 36 through 46. The text is also printed for you in your bulletins. Uh, Let us give our uh, careful attention to the reading of God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. John Newton, who we know uh, primarily now as a hymn writer, we, we sang Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, which is one of his more well-known hymns. His most famous hymn, of course, is Amazing Grace. A longtime pastor in England in the 18th century, he once wrote a letter to a parishioner, a woman who was undergoing severe suffering and afflictions. This is John Newton's greatest legacy, in my opinion, his letter writing that he did as a pastor. This is a A good question, what do you tell someone who's in the pit, to use the language of the Psalms? When you're enveloped by darkness and you can barely see the light, what do you tell someone who's in the pit? What do you tell someone feeling the weight of suffering? What do you tell someone who's in pain? It's a good question, right? It's a hard question. So many of us know what the pit feels like. I think most of us to some extent, have sat across from others who are in the pit, and we have asked for the right words that we could speak into that situation. We look back, and we feel like we said the wrong thing. So what is John Newton going to say to this woman who's in the pit? He begins by gently assuring her that God won't withhold anything that is truly good for her. But he's a, he's a good pastor, so he knows that's a hard word to hear. It's an easy word to say, it's a hard word to hear. And so he circles back and he says, but in the meantime, meanwhile, I advise you to take lodging near Gethsemane and walk daily to Mount Golgotha. What's the reason? This is my translation of his reason. Because that's where you find the truest realities in the world. That's where you find Jesus and see what it means for him to be the man of sorrows, acquainted with our suffering and grief. It's where we hear his cries. We see his pain. It's where we see Jesus abandoned by those closest to him. It's where we see him tempted. It's where we see him afraid. It's where we find Jesus with a broken heart. 
It's where we see him so dependent on the will of his father, and it's where we see him faithful to the end. I love the way that N.T. Wright puts it when he says, When we ourselves find the ground giving way beneath our feet, as sooner or later we shall, Gethsemane is where to go, because that is where we find that the Lord of the world, the one to whom is now committed all authority, he has been there before us. Here is where we find the ground giving way beneath the feet of Jesus. And when this happens to you, when it happens to me, and it will, and maybe it has, and maybe currently it feels like it is right now, you go to Gethsemane. More than anything, I think the message for us is, is simply to behold Jesus, to study him, to meditate upon him, to behold him, to behold him. Wherever you are looking for happiness and contentment, wherever you are seeking joy and peace, wherever you are seeking Meaning and purpose, I think this passage is a reminder that all of those places pale in comparison to the goodness and beauty and love of Jesus that's on display in this garden. There are three aspects of this scene that I want to meditate upon as we simply behold Jesus in Gethsemane. The first one is behold the pain. This is where the emotional life of Jesus just spills out onto the ground. Behold the pain of Jesus. Secondly, listen to him. Listen to the words that he says. Behold the prayers that he prays. And then finally, we'll look at the, the perseverance of Jesus, which is the point. It's that Jesus perseveres to the end. So three aspects, the pain, the prayers, and the perseverance of Jesus. In verse 36, he goes to a place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means winepress of oil. It was an enclosed garden area on the Mount of Olives amidst olive groves. And so they would take the olives from the harvest. They would bring them into this enclosed area and they would beat the olives. They would trample the olives in order to make oil for cooking, for lighting, for medicinal purposes, for religious purposes. And that's just a beautiful thematic background for this entire scene because Jesus goes to Gethsemane where he is beginning to be pressed. He will be wrung out. He will be poured out eventually at the cross. He leaves most of his disciples to wait for him, but he takes with him three, Peter, James, and John. James and John are the two sons of Zebedee. It's not the first time these three disciples have been chosen by Jesus to accompany him away from the rest of the disciples. The last time we saw this was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And so those who go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they behold the radiant glory of Jesus, right? Elijah and Moses are there. Uh, Peter basically falls on his face. He is scared because uh, you don't survive the glory of God when it radiates right in front of you. And they hear the audible voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And now they're apart with Jesus in a garden. They witness his sorrow. They hear at least some of his cries when they're not asleep. But there's no audible answer from heaven this time. And in verse 37, we're told that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. I think in order to grasp what Jesus is saying, we want to adjust the translation just a little bit. Because we don't talk like this. Uh, to me, it kind of sounds like Jane Austen dialogue, right? I'm troubled. <laughs> I'm sorrowful. But we don't, we don't speak that way. So I think it's better to say that he began to be depressed. And he despaired. For half of this gospel, he has anticipated this coming to Jerusalem. 
to suffer and to die. He knows the mission that he's on, and as he comes face to face with it, how does Jesus respond? The Greek philosopher Plato famously described the death of his mentor Socrates. He stoically drank the poison chalice, and he told his disciples, do not fear because I'm escaping the prison of the body. I'm going to a better place. But Jesus is no stoic. In verse 38, he turns to his closest followers, those who love him best, those who serve him well, those who believe he is who he says he is, and he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. You and I would say something along the lines of, I am so sad, I think it will kill me. I am so sad, I could die. Remember John Newton's counsel. Take lodging, set up camp next to Gethsemane. The one who conquered sin and death, the one who saves us from our sins, the one who now reigns over all creation, uttered the words, I am so filled with sorrow, it just might kill me. The Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield wrote that in the presence of this mental anguish, the physical tortures of the crucifixion retire into the background, and we may well believe that our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet died not of the cross, but as we commonly say, of a broken heart. As you can imagine, if the early Christians were insisting that this Jesus, this, this Nazarene, right, this carpenter, this this friend of, of, of fishermen, if he is God, you can see how this kind of scene throws a wrench into our conception of what God is. It messes with our preconceived notions of who God is, what it means to be God, and yet this scene is so essential in reminding us of this full humanity of Jesus that he shares in, that he took to himself fully. He feels the weight, not of his own sin. He feels the weight of the sins of the world pressing in on him. He is on the precipice of drinking the cup of God's anger towards sin. How else is he supposed to respond if he is truly like you and me? That Jesus expresses grief and sadness and fear is just this vivid reminder that he is one of us. That he assumed to his divinity our humanity. In the face of that which he fears most, he does what all of us would do. God, take it away. His emotions convey his humanity. And it's also worth pointing out his first request to Peter, James, and John. And it's for them to remain with him and watch with him. To watch means simply to stay awake. He doesn't want to be alone, but he asks for company. Jesus has full unbroken communion with the Father. And yet as he longs for the company of these three men, uh, not his disciples at this point, they're just his friends. And so there, there are so many beautiful examples of the mystery of the incarnation, that, that God became man. Um, Jesus was put down for naps when he was a baby. Jesus was tired and he got hungry. He got sick. But that he should want so much the company of three fishermen and that he is so crushed when they fail him might be the most astonishing paradox of the incarnation that we have. I just need you to be with me and they failed. So when we come to Gethsemane, we first of all behold his pain. It's all over the pages of our Bibles. Secondly, let's listen to him. Let's behold his prayers. Jesus, in verse 39, leaves the immediate presence of his three disciples. He falls on his face and he prays, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what is the cup that Jesus dreads? It's the cup of God's anger toward sin. Isaiah 51, uh, the prophet looks back at the punishment of Israel. They're put into exile, and that punishment is described as Israel drinking the cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, there's a picture of the nations who receive God's punishment. And again, it's the same picture. They are drinking God's wrath. And so Jesus holds in his hands, so to speak, the cup of judgment for the sins of the world. And his prayer is not to depart from the Father's will. His prayer amounts to asking, is there any other way? A way that doesn't involve the suffering that he's facing and the suffering that he is now in. And this has been a thread from the beginning of Matthew that we keep pulling, and we want to keep pulling it because it's, it's so crucial here. So you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, who says, right now I can give you the kingdoms of this world. You just got to ask. And Jesus clings to the word of his father, sends him away. Matthew 16, the high point of, of Matthew. Uh, who do you say that I am, Simon Peter? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's right. And the son of man has to go to Jerusalem and suffer evil and wickedness and death at the hands of, of evil men. And Peter says, May that never be. And Jesus, with his harshest rebuke, says, Get behind me, Satan. I have heard that before. But the kingdom must be given to Jesus through his suffering. Now we're pulling that thread because right here, Jesus is holding the cup and his hands are trembling. Why does Jesus pray? He stands before the cup of God's wrath towards sin. He feels every ounce of his humanity, and he cries out to his Father to rescue him. Jesus shares, as we've seen, completely in our humanity. If Jesus was not truly and fully human in body, mind, and will, and emotions, he could not stand in our place as a substitute for sin, and so he prays as one of us simply because he is. If there is any other way forward, may that way be the way. We need a human mediator, one of us who stands in for us. Jesus cries out, is there another way? But he conforms his desire to the will of his father. And after praying, he goes to find his three confidants sleeping. Um, and he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he prays a second time, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he finds them sleeping, and then he prays a third time, and we're left to assume the content of the prayer is basically the same. My Father, if this is possible, or if this is not possible. And so what's beautiful is that we have this example of Jesus experience the world shaking beneath his feet, and what does he pray? It's the Lord's Prayer. Three times, my Father, my Father, my Father. Why do you pray? To avoid temptation, he tells his friends. And he keeps coming back to your will be done. We have this window into the intimacy of the Father and the Son. I mean, we can only imagine the depths of this relationship that has existed uh, from before time was ever created. And Jesus clings to the will of his Father. Your will be done. A way of saying, if, if the cup can't be removed, then Father, will you be enough? Will you be enough? He calls on his disciples to pray so they wouldn't be led into temptation once the test came. And of course, they not only fail once the test comes, they fail in leading up to the test. They fail in the preparation. 
Jesus prays for himself. And as a perfect priest, he never ceases to pray uh, to the Father he confides in and to, the, and to the people for whom he will go to the cross. So we behold Jesus in the garden. We behold his pain. We listen to him. We behold his prayers. And finally, our last point is that we behold his perseverance. That's the point of the passage. Jesus perseveres and persists. Jesus is the God, as the psalmist puts it, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. The story of sin and destruction began in a garden where the first Adam fell to temptation. The story of sin and destruction comes to an end in a different garden with a new Adam who clings to God's word and to God's will. As we have seen for the last few weeks, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday not as a victim but as a champion. Three times he asks his disciples to stay awake and keep him company. And three times he finds them asleep. And I don't think that the main uh, takeaway of this passage is intended to inspire us to wake up and pay attention to God's activity in the world that we can be a part of. And I've heard messages like that before. The message is not be like Jesus, don't be like Peter, James, and John. That's always the message. That's always true. Instead, this scene teaches us as it displays for us the greatness of Jesus' commitment and love to his Father and to those who fell asleep. Us. Jesus wrestled in prayerful agony as their Savior, even while they slept. Jesus would not abandon them, but he would go all the way as their great shepherd, laying down his life for his sheep. He would keep them because they and we cannot keep ourselves. And here in this scene, right from the start, is this bittersweet reality of Christianity that has been true in every generation. Uh, Our generation notwithstanding, it's true as well. This bittersweet reality that from the beginning, Christianity cannot ever be looking at Christians. We lament that. We should mourn that. To some extent, it should keep us up at night. But from the beginning, even from this scene, it's always about looking at the beauty and purity of Christ. In the end, though Peter, James, and John fail to keep watch with Jesus, he doesn't abandon them. The last thing he says, and this is the the word of grace in this passage, he says, rise, let us be going. You're still with me. His prayers cover their lack of prayers. His faithfulness is their righteousness, even when he has nothing left of himself to give. So what do we do with this? We behold Jesus in all of his goodness, love, and beauty. Well, the main point of this passage, and I still maintain, it's not to instruct us. There are not three principles of of praying that are automatically on the surface of this passage. And so while I maintain that's true, I also can't think of a more meaningful scene to spur us on to prayer and to depend on Christ. I mean, we can imagine the regret and the shame that Peter and John and James wrestled with as they told the story of this night. Like, why didn't we stay awake for Jesus? But at the same time, wasn't this story their glory? And didn't they have one more pillar of Jesus' faithfulness to lean on? One more pillar to support them the rest of their lives. To buttress them the rest of their lives. Instead of a night that ruined them, it was the night where Jesus went from the garden to the cross to the grave, taking to himself their guilt and their shame. 
It was a night where Jesus went from the garden to the cross to the grave, taking to himself our guilt, our shame. Friends, we are called to a life of keeping watch, not so that we might gain Christ, but because we already have him and he keeps watch over us. Do you believe that same story for you? He is the faithful one. A new and better Adam who brings life to his people. Our champion who entered the jaws of death and came out the other side. For some of us, I hope this is a wake-up call. A wake-up call when our hearts are, are, are apathetic and they're callous and they're hard-hearted, when we're asleep. Because we need to stay here near Jesus in Gethsemane to behold his love and to behold his faithfulness. There is no love like this. There is no word of grace this world offers like rise. Let us be going, you're still with me. For others of you who know the contours of the walls of the pit, for others who are tired and who are frustrated, who are depressed, who are suffering, would you take lodging near Gethsemane because there you will find the truest realities of the world. There you will find your perfect priest, Jesus, who has not stopped praying. There you will find Jesus in every way like us, but without sin. There you will find your perfect priest, Jesus, like us in every way, but he is faithful to the end. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I'm guessing that most bodies in this room know the, uh, the, the basic outline of this night in Gethsemane. Know the basic storyline of Jesus on his knees alone, praying, anguished. And yet, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would take a, a story that we know in order to make it our story. Lord, that we are those who have fallen asleep far too often. We are those who turn our backs uh, far too regularly. And so, Lord, would you impress upon us uh, the, the unparalleled goodness, faithfulness of Jesus, the one who went all the way, the one who drank the cup of wrath towards sin, though sinless, the one who took the cup that we deserve, that, that too often we um, just flippantly don't really believe is real, and yet Jesus trembled, um, which tells us the fear that we should have, and yet it's gone, that Jesus has removed the sting, the pain, the fear of death. Lord, give us eyes of faith to behold our champion, Jesus, who goes before us, who attains the crown, and who calls us to himself. Who says to those who uh, more often than not exhibit faithlessness. Rise let us be going. You're still with me. Lord we thank you for this word. We pray that you would implant it into our hearts. 
that it would shape us into those who love you more, that it would shape us into those who love others well and better. Lord, that you would use your word in a way that uh, only you can do by your power. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.